When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're momming today with Erica Sanzi and her dogs. Erica's a mom of three, three boys, teenagers. She's got two dogs. They're with her now. You might hear them. She's a former educator and a former school board member, now the director of outreach at Parents Defending Education. Erica, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. You got a lot of defending to do these days. Uh, you know, just in, in, in quick prep for this for this conversation, I have a handful of topics I want to discuss with you. And, you know, I'm I'm also a mom, a mom of three. My children are younger. And I, I, I don't even know what to look for. What, what should moms be looking for and dads be looking for when their kids come home from school? What questions do we ask? What, what, what are the triggers? Well, one of the things that I do, I mean, my kids are a little bit older now, but oftentimes my student, my children will make a statement, right? Like my, they might just say, I don't know. They'll make an assertion about something. And so I'll often be like, oh, really? And I'll be like, well, what evidence do you have to back that up? <laughs> and they quickly realize, oh, well, you know, it's and maybe it's that my teacher told me, oh, the truth is I'm blessed to be in a school system right now that's really not engaging in very much of this sort of indoctrination or dogmatic um, way of teaching students to see the world. Mm -hmm. um, but they might even see it, you know, on on some sort of social media platform and suddenly or some, you know, meme that's going viral and they'll think they'll form an opinion. And then I ask them a question or two and it's like the opinion collapses. because They don't know anything. Oh. So for one thing, I would just, you know, I always advise parents to, you know, try to get your kids to back up their claims. I mean, one problem with this, of course, is that often when we even ask the adults in our lives if they can back up their claims, like those also seem to collapse quickly. Um but that's one thing that I would definitely do is just make sure that your kids aren't parroting somebody else's talking points. Can you give me a specific example? Because I, what, what I have on the tip of my tongue right now is my daughter, she's six. She takes a social emotional learning class. And so from what I can see, it's learning deep breaths, how to calm yourself. They do some yoga. They're taught kindness. Are there certain questions I should be asking to, to really dig in to see if that class is actually making our students more nervous, ironically, more anxious, because they're starting to teach them things that they might not, as at these young ages or any age, be ready to handle? And it's not the school's job to give them those um, conversations and those lessons. I'll try to think of a specific example. More generally, um, it certainly does seem like under this umbrella of social emotional learning, which listeners need to know, the social emotional learning has undergone a radical shift since 2019. Is that so, when it started, social emotional learning? No, social emotional, it's been around for a while. Yeah. I, I have to look to see like exact time. It's not new, but what is new is what's called transformative um, SEL, social emotional learning, and that um, gets very much into social justice, racial justice, and using SEL as an equity lever. Ugh. So 
rather than it being about individuals, you know, learning these important soft skills, I guess we could call them, right? Whether it's learning to calm themselves down, learning to take larger tasks and break them into smaller chunks, learning to um, look people in the eye when they talk to them, you know, maybe something about a firm handshake might be in there, cooperation, sharing. The, the troubling part is that, unfortunately, there's been a big shift um, in the organization that sort of, it's like the overseer of all things, social emotional learning. It's called CASEL. I forget what the letters stand for, but they're C-A-S-E-L. Um, and anytime they're in the mix, that means that we're dealing with this definitional change. And so just to give an example that brought this point home to me is, for example, the social emotional learning program may want to teach empathy. And I'm pretty sure that parents, you know, of every stripe and persuasion and background would be like empathy. Of course, empathy is a good thing. That's important. I like that. We all want empathy. But then the way that it's done is where it gets into what is obviously ideology and arguably indoctrination. So, for example, yeah, I need an example on this one. If students are learning, if young elementary age students are learning about the importance of making sure that everyone feels like they belong and that the subject of transgender students comes up, what will happen is that little girls will be told that empathy requires them to put the feelings of the other person before their own. And that would include that if a little girl is in the bathroom at school and a trans girl comes into the bathroom. So we're talking about a biological male, whether that were to be a student or a staff member were to come into the bathroom. The lesson would be that she needs to ignore her feelings of discomfort and potentially feeling like she's her safety is compromised because she needs to put the feelings of that other person, that other marginalized person, I'm doing air quotes, ahead of her feelings, right? So it's almost like, it's like that gut feeling, that little voice in uh, us, especially girls and women that tells us to be on alert that something might not be right. The lesson is, extinguish that, ignore that, because the feelings of this other person are more important. How old are these kids? Like, uh, what age? This would be in elementary school. In elementary school. This would be like an elementary lesson. And so that's how you can see how words that sound nice, right, that we would all rally behind can be incredibly twisted and distorted into something much more sinister. And the people that are blowing the whistle on social emotional learning because they've seen it in action or they've seen the transformation, you know, from earlier years to more recent years, or they're seeing the impact it's having on students, which they consider to be negative Mm -hmm. and detrimental. Now, does that mean that every social emotional learning program is terrible and awful and parents should panic the second they hear that those words? No, it does not mean that. But it does mean that they probably should start to do a little bit of digging just to say, what do you mean by this? What program are you using? What does this look like in practice? Should because what? Oh, go ahead. Sh- should the schools perhaps 
give the parents the lesson plans like this is what we are doing in class so you can prepare yourself for what your child might be learning in class I mean, certainly that would be ideal, although that would add a lot of work to the school. And then I could see them being like, you know, we can't we don't want to have to hand out lesson plans to every family. But it certainly speaks to the importance of curriculum transparency, because, you know, why wouldn't those materials be available either on the website or anybody who asked for them? The other thing I would say for sure I would do again, my children aren't really young enough for this, but if I were a parent now of younger children and I was hearing the words social emotional learning a lot in the school, or if I was getting lots of emails that referenced that, I would absolutely be asking, are you teaching transformative SEL? Yep. That's the, that's the buzzword. See, I didn't even know that. That's what I would ask about. Um, and, and I can send you something after this and you could add it to your show notes. Um, just so people can see what that is, but essentially what that is, is that's a, that has decided that social emotional learning is a lever is a vehicle for creating social justice, racial justice, equity, et cetera. So- and again, lots of terms that sound really nice on their face, but aren't so nice when you dig into what they actually mean by them. Can you define in any way you know, how, how many kids right now are struggling with gender identity? So I want to say that the la- well, struggling with gender identity is is um, or are we confusing them more? Well, so that's what I would say. So we saw a gigantic jump. A recent study came out in Gen Z. So that would be like the kids who are adolescents now. There's just been a massive jump. Now, part of this is because. They've added, they keep adding new categories on, right? So what was LGB became LGBT, became LGBTQ, became LGBTQIA+, et cetera. (laughs) So basically, so that's one of the reasons. And and another um, absolute reason for this, well, well, I think it's actually twofold. I do think that the schools um, bear a lot of responsibility for the confusion um, around gender identity and also the explosion in adolescent girls suddenly out of the blue deciding that they no longer identify as girls, um, which is a huge concern and something that we should all be talking about a lot more than we are. Um, I also think that the, that the social media platforms that a lot of the kids who end up falling into this gender identity confusion um, they often are very active on these platforms that almost become. Okay. I, I want to know all about these yeah, platforms so- and these topics. We're going to do it when we're momming today returns right after this. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than, Hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We are back on We're Momming today with Erica Sanzi talking about um, an explosion, to quote you, of girls saying they're not girls anymore. How, how is this happening? And if you're a parent and, and your child falls into this category, what do you do? Yeah, those are really great questions. And I have to say that I hear from parents all the time um, who are dealing with this. And it 
it's not an exaggeration to say that they really feel like they are going through hell. Um, they will describe, well, I guess I should just go back quickly for listeners who don't know, but gender dysphoria um, is a term that's been around forever. It was always considered a mental health disorder, which is why it is in the DSM. And um, it mostly afflicted boys and it, and they would feel it from a very, very young age. So really, really early on, like as young as two and three, they just did not feel at all interested in the stuff that all the other boys were interested. And they, they, they manifested, um, you know, just behaviors and interests that were much more aligned with what you would call like a typical girl. So it wasn't just the kid who maybe liked a few different things. It was that they're in, they just felt like they were completely in the wrong body and like their minds and bodies did not feel like they were aligned. And the um, strategy for helping these children was what was called watch and wait. So you would keep your eye on it and you would, you know, of course be supportive and loving and just wait to see like, how does this play out? And in over and in two thirds of the cases, these little boys grew up to be gay men. The big change has been that the care has shifted from watch and wait to what's called affirmation or affirming care. Mm. And that means essentially that the adults are, are told or advised that they need to go along with whatever it is that the child says they are right. So if the child wants a new name, you go with it. And if the child wants um, to dress differently, you go with it and new pronouns, you go with it. And, um, and that extends to medical interventions that include you know, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones like testosterone, and then also um, gender reassignment surgery. Again, those all fall into this category of affirming care. So what we're talking about here is something very serious. It is not just a person painting their fingernails, you know, or dyeing their hair or changing their name. We're talking about, you know, irreversible steps taken that, again, that would affect a child. Um, may, minor for the rest of their life. May I butt in with two questions here? Sure. Um, number one, if the school knows any of this is happening and the parent does not, is the school allowed to tell the parent that, you know, Shirley now wants to be called Jack in school and mom, mom doesn't know that Shirley's Jack in school. She she still calls her, her Shirley. That, that would be my first question. And uh, m- my second is, are parents more inclined to for affirming care because they fear or they're being told that, hey, if, if you don't listen to what your kid wants right now, if you if you don't give them what they want, they might commit suicide. Um, yes and yes. Jeez. Well, no. So the so, well to the first question, um, I can't say this is the case in every single state because we just haven't looked at all of the state policies. But what I can say is that in pretty much all the states that I have looked at, parents do not have a right to know um, if their children are or have changed their gender identity during school hours. My so, blood is um, boiling right now. Yeah. Well, this has become a big flashpoint. I myself was stunned when I found this out. I'm probably maybe like a year and a half in now to knowing this. So my, you know, my blood isn't boiling as much as yours just because I'm, I've been talking about this and thinking about this for a longer time. And I'm I'm, like, I'm a parent that's very dialed into what's going on in schools, or at least I thought I was. My district came out with a plan. I like applauded it because I thought it was just an attempt to, you know, it was, it was anti-discrimination. We weren't going to discriminate against students who considered themselves to be transgender or non-binary. You know, they would be treated with dignity and respect. 
That made sense to me, right? I didn't dive into the text of the policy, my mistake. And it turns out that even in that in my district, that um, children will be put on gender support plans if they say their parents are unaware or unsupportive. Um, the school officials are not allowed to share any information with the parents. And let me just tell you what that can look like. That can look like somebody using a different name and different pronouns. That can look like somebody using different restrooms and locker rooms. That can look like a student um, on an overnight field trip, the sleeping accommodations, they'd be allowed to sleep with the, um, you know, according to the gender with which they identify. That gender can be, you know, it can be like different day to day. So if, if literally the policy would allow for person identifies as one thing today, they use those facilities. Tomorrow that changes. They use those facilities. School records are changed. So actually into the computer, people go and they change the names and the pronouns um, according to the gender identity. And the only records that remain um, intact with their legal birth name and the name their parents call them are the external facing records like report cards and transcripts. So we're talking about policies where the deception is literally baked in. And um, I have heard from teachers, not only in my state, but in other states. Here's a quote from one. He said, I feel like I have to take an ethical shower every day when I get home from work. And that's because he is a father and a grandfather. And he is absolutely horrified that he is being told that he must lie to parents, deceive parents as a condition of his employment. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, so it's it's and now and, and now here's something now, now the, what they'll say. And I've had people say this to me is, well, if the parent, if the child hasn't told the parent, obviously the parent must be dangerous, harmful, abusive, a bigot. Et Stop it. Stop so what this. Yeah. So what happens is, is it true that there are parents who exist who are those things? Yes. And is it true that there are students who may actually be in danger if their parents find out? Yes. yes. But the problem is those are the outliers and what the school system, well, what the states have done with their guidance and what the school districts have done is they've decided we're going to treat every single parent like that violent outlier. We're going to, we're not even going to give parents a chance to help their kids through this, right. To respond well to this. Because we're going to we're going to keep all the information from them, because, again, we're going to treat them all like like the worst of the worst. Well, parents are terrorists. Parents. Come on now. Yep. Um, so that's it. So, so that's exactly what has happened. The default has become treat every parent as if they were the worst parent. You know, and, and I think we're all trying to raise empathetic kids. What if, you know, your child has these issues and is, you know, trans or, you know, comes home and says, hey, mom, dad, um, you know, Michael was in the locker room today. I need to be prepared with an empathetic and a correct response to that. And I'm not sure. I mean, how, how would you suggest parents deal with any of these conversations? I mean, I can speak to sort of how I would deal with them, right? Which is that like we treat people with kindness. We treat people with respect. We're never mean to people. We don't bully people. We're not cruel. And that applies to everybody. So, you know, I shouldn't have to, I don't really have to have a separate conversation about like different kids in different categories because the expectation is that we treat everybody well. Yeah. Um, and that's what schools used to teach. For some reason now, they seem to be trying to um, 
plant seeds in the heads of children that like we treat people differently based on the boxes they check around their identity. Um, so that's obviously, you know, a major red flag and a yeah. huge concern. And also one of the you know most upsetting and concerning things about this is that there just isn't anybody who loves a, their, a child as much as their parent, right? So if you were to scour planet Earth, nobody loves them as much as their parents do, regardless of whether their parents, you know, are really, you know, on board or not with something like, you know, gender identity or gender confusion. But the reality is that when the activists, the ideologues, the teachers, the counselors, the school administration, all of the people who either, you know, put these ideas in their heads, told them that all of their upset during adolescence was all attributable to the fact that they're really, you know, not the gender that they thought they were, right? So they make these promises. The schools then celebrate that. So it's like all of a sudden the student who maybe wasn't getting much attention, you know, we see a disproportionate number of kids on the autism spectrum now identifying as the, as a, the opposite gender or as non-binary. And again, like suddenly a student that may have felt socially awkward, now they're getting all this attention. Now they're being celebrated. So, um, but at, at the end of the day, right, because we see such a huge percentage of kids who do transition as minors, whether they just do a social transition or something much more serious that involves, you know, chemical, trans, you know, drugs um, or surgeries, is that in many, many cases, ultimately they realize, you know what, like it wasn't true. Like my, my mental, my mental health didn't improve. It got worse. You know, my thoughts of suicide didn't go away. They got worse. Hmm. And all the people that told me this was the fix, they're gone. All of those people that promised me that this was, you know, this was going to solve all my problems. This was going to make adolescence easier. Um, they're all gone. And the only people still there to sit by their side and help them pick up the pieces are their parents. So it's terrifying to think that there would be like, you know, an intentional and deliberate effort to to extricate the parents from all of this. Right. To car to, to make it so that they're not even part of this equation. When, again, putting aside those fringe outlier bad parents the vast majority are going to be there by their side, holding their hand, telling them everything's going to be okay and helping them pick up the pieces, you know, and yet, well, and the people who, and then the people who are the creators of all of this collateral damage, they are nowhere to be found. And yet you have the mayor of New York city, uh, Eric Adams, <laughs> taking a, a, a political jab at, at, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has just, you know, signed into law, although that law doesn't go into effect for another couple of months, you know, where if you have a young kid between the ages of five and nine, the teacher cannot discuss sexual or gender orientation in the classroom. So the New York mayor um, puts out these billboards basically saying, come here, come to New York. You know, you can you can be whatever you want. And do you think people see through that? Or, or is it if, if I'm in New York, is the interpretation then, oh, well, I guess you're going to teach my kid this in school. If you're trying to recruit Floridians who don't like what DeSantis just did, come to New York and we're going to we're going to teach your young children this in school. That was my interpretation. I mean, OK, first of all, the Florida bill, just to 
tiny little correction to what you said is that it actually would prohibit instruction on those topics. So it's not just that offhand comment question, you know, little conversation. So discussion's okay. Discussion's okay. Instruction so is not. okay. Now this is this is where I'm this is where there's obviously a lot of consternation because people are arguing over like, well, could you say this or what about this and all these hypotheticals and I understand that there's concern. But but the in the K through 3 part of that bill, it's about instruction. So it's saying there will not be any instruction on gender ideology, gender identity, sexual orientation, sexual identity. That's what it says. And when people say, oh, give me a break, that's not happening. Yes, it is. We have plenty of examples um, where throughout the country where students starting in kindergarten and first grade are being introduced to these topics. So um, now my suspicion is that Mayor Adams, like most people talking about this stuff, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Like he's not informed. And I was working in schools as recently as 2015, I think 2015, somewhere around there. And when I tell you that the change between just seven years ago and what is happening in schools right now is so dramatic that all of these people in elected office who are just hearkening back to their days in school or their kids' days in school and thinking that, like, that must be how it is now, it isn't. It's completely different. Um, And I say that as somebody who is, you know, parenting my own children, worked in schools, served on a school board, and now I spend my time looking through lessons, activities, curriculum, school board policies throughout the country. And it is like a freight train of crazy came Um, barreling through in the past five years. We still did not get to the Biden administration changing potentially Title IX um, to say no person shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in sports and what that does to women's sports. Moms, we have daughters who might be very good at what they do and they might not want to compete against a biological male. We didn't discuss that. We did not discuss this mom in New York. Her young children are still in masks. And she asked the uh, the mayor, Eric Adams, again. She said, hey, you promised they had come off. They didn't. Why? She gets fired from her job with the city as a result of that question. Maybe some other things brought into that firing as well. We did not discuss what's going on at Disney. So we're going to have to get you back on because I have so many more questions. And you're just... um full of of these changes that, you know, as we wrap this up, how did this explode in the past seven years? If there was one trigger, what would it be? A lot of people said it was the pandemic because then parents finally saw what their kids were learning. But I feel like it's something more than that. Well, it's it's coming in a few different directions. And I think what happened is that this has been coming in for a while. I mean, teacher prep programs are steeped in queer theory, critical race theory, critical gender theory, and, and teacher prep programs also where I have been teaching, teaching teachers that their role is to be an activist, that their role as a teacher is to teach is a political act. And you are an activist and you have an obligation to be an agent of social change. So that's part of it, right? It's the teacher prep programs uh, for sure. And academia more generally as well. I mean, you and I both know, right? Like that these ideas have been there for a long time and everybody kept saying, well, they're going to stay there. And then we realize, oh, actually 
the people that were saying they're not going to stay there were right. We were wrong. And now it feels like our K-12 schools are completely captured. The other huge factor, or at least accelerant, was the killing of George Floyd, because at that time, every corporation, every nonprofit and every school district either felt or was told you have to do something. Mm. And so they reached for something. And in many cases, they delegated this. So they didn't realize what they didn't realize that the something that was going to be brought into their district, often at great cost, was going to be so poisonous, so toxic, so divisive. And that's why, you know, that's why we hear, you know, whether it's CEOs or people that are running nonprofits or school districts, basically saying my organization is collapsing from within, like we need another way that we can quote unquote, do this work that doesn't destroy us. Um, And I think what happened is like, this is a multi, multi, multi multi-billion dollar industry. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is a huge moneymaker. And so there were consultants and there were groups waiting in the wings. And the moment that that tragedy happened with George Floyd, they like jumped into the space and started, you know, offering up all their services, saying evidence-based, research-based. No, it isn't. And so, again, suddenly parents were like, what is going on? They're getting all these emails. They're hearing all these new jargon and all these new words are being called terrible names for asking questions. They're seeing huge contracts, you know, going to these consultants so that they can do all sorts of things in the name of equity, social justice, anti-racism, et cetera. And it's just taking a really long time for people to catch up because, again, like a lot of the words that they use sound virtuous and all of us would want to get behind them. But when you peel back the layers, you realize that what you're actually engaging in is something that is um, very ideological in nature, very dogmatic and also um, incredibly, incredibly divisive and harmful, especially to children. Yeah. Hands off. Is, is my bottom line here. Hands off how I raise my kids. Uh, Erica, thank you for the time. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.